I remember really kind of pushing myself to stay in roles in a role that I frankly was not was not happy was not motivated was not did not feel like I was I belonged and I stayed there because I I felt like I needed to because I can't afford to start over again I I didn't get to express the creativity that they thought I would I didn't get to I didn't learn I stopped learning things from Viton Career Coaching, it's How I Got Here, a show about business leaders, their resilience, and the stories behind their career moves. I'm Vincent Famvan, and I've interviewed thousands of job candidates over the years in both recruiting and as a former corporate executive. Now, I'm on a mission to help you take the next step in your career. A corporate job opening attracts an average of 250 resumes, and just one person is going to get hired. It wasn't all that long ago that I was nervous and frustrated by my job search, but it doesn't have to be this way. You can navigate your career with confidence, spend every day learning, and drive to better yourself. You can be excited about the future. In today's episode, we meet Carrie Jo, who is a recruiter for data engineers at Facebook after she pivoted out of other industries into tech. Growing up, Carrie and her family moved to a few different cities in a few different communities, and this ended up shaping who she became as an adult after she grew up. I was born in uh, Salem, Oregon, so Pacific Northwest. My parents are both immigrants from China. And after leaving there, my dad actually followed his professor down to Reno, Nevada, which was very interesting. It's so strange when I tell people that my I'm from Reno or that my childhood is in Reno. It's a very, uh, I look back on that time very fondly. When I look back on that time, I'm like, wow, that was, that was a very homogenous community that I lived in, in that like, there was hard, not a lot of minority representation at school. And so I think I remember being one of three Asian kids in my, in my class of like 100 or 200 people. And I remember that that felt a little isolating. And, and I remember I, I stayed in Reno until I was like around fifth grade. And I always remembered feeling, just feeling different at, from the others and, and kind of recognizing that I wasn't necessarily a part of the majority community and I didn't really know what that meant. I think my parents had this, you know, I think it's just at the time those types of neighborhoods were the safest and had the best schooling and following that kind of trend we we wound up in in Roseville, California. So it was when I look back on my time as a child, I think it's like it's hard not to think of my life also as a minority and as a first generation um Chinese American and kind of feeling a little bit like whenever people would compliment me, it would always be, it would always have the qualifier like, oh yeah, for an Asian, <laughs> like, oh yeah, you're, you're, you're good. You're good at you're sports. Cool or like, for an yeah, Asian. Yes. <laughs> I, I, I really, I was like, and it's so weird that like, that seems so trivial, right? Like when I look back on that now, I'm like, this, this feels like it shouldn't have any weight. But when I look back on that now and I think about you know, I think last year or two years ago at this point when Crazy Rich Asians came out and it was this huge fanfare and just like kind of sigh of like, oh, wow, this is what representation feels like. Mm-hmm. I think it wasn't until then that I realized that those little things back when I was growing up kind of influenced my way of thinking and thinking that I needed to compensate for not being a majority, you know, not being a part of the majority. When she talks about feeling like you have to compensate, 
feeling like you have to fit this mold of what other people want you to say of what the quote unquote right answer is. That's one of the biggest takeaways that I had from this episode with Carrie. Later on in this episode, she talks about how to have authentic conversations where your personality actually shows through in your interactions with others. This is the difference between talking to coworkers or potential coworkers and trying to put on a face of who you think you have to be in order to be successful in the professional world versus simply being who you actually are. You know, carrying yourself with confidence and and the way that you and the way that you kind of articulate yourself is really important in any kind of setting, but it's also just speaking the language of your audience and and it's almost like I think coming from someone historically who has not spoken up in any meeting because I felt like I was afraid of what to say. I, I felt like if I didn't have something groundbreaking or philosophical to contribute, then I just shouldn't say anything. I think realizing that we're all kind of just figuring it out and no one has anything groundbreaking or interesting to say all the time. And it's okay to just use that space to really, to really just kind of connect with people. And I think, you know, looking back on when I was applying for, for jobs, I actually applied through the UCLA Career Center a ton as well. And I thought that I needed to go into every single interview with that same mentality of saying something groundbreaking, saying something that is like so innovative that they can't say no. Mm -hmm. But what I've come to realize is it's more about how you, how you can kind of express who you are and your work ethic and your commitment and your dedication than it is necessarily about saying the magic phrase or like the buzzwords that appeal to people. I think unless there's true, like unless there's true substance behind a philosophical statement that, that really doesn't get you too far. What I've come to realize, like I said, is just that as long as you show up and you're authentic and you can truly demonstrate your work ethic, that that's most important rather than spending a ton of time trying to curate a version of yourself that says all the right things. A lot of the advice that you hear in as you're going through a job search is be yourself. Mm -hmm. And I know for a long time, I was just like, well, what does that mean? Like, yeah. how do you actually be yourself? Like, who else would I be? I, I am <laughs> myself. So, you know, check. I'm going to definitely yeah. do that in a job interview. And it wasn't until like years later after I had done phone screens for like a thousand yeah. people that I really understood that in some of those conversations, I got a sense of who the person was yeah, and what yeah. they were passionate about yeah, and how they are as a human being. Yeah. And in others, I didn't. The only thing that I knew was, it was like, okay, yeah, this person can code and react. Yeah. But other yeah. than that, I don't feel like I actually know who you are. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things actually, um, so I studied anthropology at UCLA. And one of the things that I just remember that as you were kind of sharing that anecdote is people are incredibly good at detecting authenticity mm -hmm. and, and as much as, you know, there can, people can be fooled or deceived or things like that at the core, when you, when you talk to someone and you have a real conversation that that's tangible, and I think 
that's what's important. It's being being genuine to that and being true to that as opposed to the blanket be yourself. You shouldn't be trying to curate yourself to belong in a role. You should be looking for roles that belong to you. And it's, you know, I, I started off my, my career. My first job was um, actually in Tokyo, Japan, which was amazing. I actually did find that, that opportunity through the Career Center somehow. And uh, I remember, you know, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I just knew that I, when I was in school, I wanted to travel abroad. I wanted to study abroad, but it was incredibly, it was incredibly expensive. And so it just didn't make sense for me to invest in that at the time as a student. And so getting the opportunity to work internationally was really exciting. Plus, I always remember people ask me why I chose Japanese as a language when I would never use it in America. <laughs> and so, you know, definitely came in handy with my first job, but I didn't know what I, really what I wanted besides the fact that I wanted to travel. And I had mm-hmm. that classic millennial itch that <laughs> needed to be scratched. And, and then after that, when I realized, I think as things kind of got stressful and I realized that I was, I, I was kind of swimming in over my head in that I didn't really understand how to be a professional. And I was one of 12 for the American branch of this company. And I was looking for advice, but no one could necessarily give it to me because of the language barrier. Mm -hmm. That's when I realized I kind of needed to start over. So tell me a little bit about, you know, you, you make in, when we fast forward this story, you made a pivot Mm -hmm. into tech. Yeah. Like what were the things that led to that decision? What were some of the considerations? Was there a moment? Where do you remember like where you were at the moment that you decided that you wanted to make that move? Yeah. So I, I started over twice, I think in my, in my career so far, and I've only been a working professional for like seven, seven ish years now. And I remember there was always a stigma around, I mean, there still is, I work in recruiting, so I know this, but around job hoppers and people who kind of start over, who kind of seem like they're aimless. And I remember really kind of pushing myself to stay in roles, in a role that I frankly was not, was not happy, was not motivated, was not, did not feel like I was, I belonged. And I stayed there because I I felt like I needed to, because I can't afford to start over again. And my second kind of, like I said, alluded to before, I, I kind of felt like I needed to start over after that job in Japan. I moved into commercial real estate after that and, you know, felt the same exact feeling of feeling like this wasn't I, I didn't get to express the creativity that they thought I would. I didn't get to, I didn't learn. I stopped learning things. I think eventually it became a matter of maintaining. Mm-hmm. And I felt like I was getting, I was starting to get stunted. And that's when I felt like I, I feel like I need to start over again. And so my, my second start, my second wave of having to start over really was just quitting my job and not having one in line because I knew that if I rushed that decision that I would probably do the exact same thing again, where I was running away from a bad situation and not running toward an opportunity, because I think that's how I kind of wound up in commercial real estate in the first place was I had a job offer on the table and I was like, you know what, anything is better than the current environment I'm in. So I'm just going to take the first offer. 
And I think it's, um, I think people always say like, don't take the first offer. But at that time, it's like, if you're running, if you realize, I would say if you're running away from anything and that's the reason why you're choosing a career, then that's the wrong reason. Just to kind of gut check with yourself, like be honest with yourself. Is this the, am I really running towards this opportunity? And at that time I wasn't. And so I knew I needed to take some time off. So I, I quit my job again without having anything lined up. And it was also around a time when, you know, going through a lot of personal, personal changes, one of my really long-term relationships was, was falling apart. And it was just a lot of things happening at the same time that kind of forced me to break away from autopilot. Because I think up until that point, I kind of just made the decision that on paper seemed like the right move and seemed like an incrementally better situation than the last. And that's when I realized that it's not, I guess like I had to really check with myself to say, like, what do I actually like doing? And even if it's not necessarily like my lifelong passion, like what do I enjoy doing? What am I good at? And I remember talking to one of my friends from, you know, one of my former colleagues and he was telling me about, you know, about the tech world. And at that time it was, it was already pretty booming in the Bay area and I was already set in the Bay area. So I was pretty saturated with it, but I think I, I avoided it under the guise of like, I felt like it was the thing that everyone wanted to do. And I just didn't want to be a part of that. And I wanted to think that there was I wanted to think that there was ways that I could contribute even outside of tech. So to start, I actually like actively avoided looking in tech and I started looking in education as a, as a sector. Mm-hmm. It wasn't until one of my friends really told me some of the projects that he was working on. He was working in recruiting as well at the, at the time. And, and it wasn't until he started talking about the culture of work there and the types of conversations they had with each other that I was like, wait a second this is work. Like you, like you are talking about diversity and inclusion at work. Like you're talking about politics at work. Like these are all things coming out of commercial real estate and corporate Japan that were pretty taboo topics. And, mm-hmm. and the concept of bringing your whole self to work was like not really existent. And to hear someone really um, talk about that was really, was really exciting. And just something that I was like, you know what, maybe I'll give this a shot and honestly, I, I kind of fell into recruiting because I just, I knew that kind of in relating to the career search that I was going through and networking and going through a ton of different meetup groups, trying to just meet people, messaging people on LinkedIn to try and get a coffee chat and potentially a referral into a company. I realized that, you know, there's a lot more people in that situation. And if I could be a part of their story to help them find a career, the way that my friend who was the recruiter at the time helped me that even though I have other passions and hobbies and things like that, that's something I could get good at and something that I would believe in. And regardless of what industry I wanted, I knew at least that I wanted to be part of like the recruiting org, part of helping people find a career. Mm -hmm. Now, tech in and of itself kind of overlays into the story because, you know, it it happened to be my first recruiting job, but it also was kind of the instigator, like hearing how people truly did value others' opinions. Like when I think about even working or working at Facebook during everything that's been happening around social injustice, 
my one-on-ones as a manager now are centered around having difficult conversations about race and justice and systemic, systemic racism. And when I look back at what my life would have been had I not come into this industry, I don't think, I think that a lot of those conversations would have been, well, this is work and we want to, we want to make sure that we respect the workplace and, you know, dissociate anything outside of that. And so to be in an industry that really values and says, no, we're going to like, we know that your personal life is part of your life, which ultimately inter- intersects with your job. We want to give you space. And it's my, and it's actually my responsibility as a manager right now to give people space to process and to have these conversations. And so again, I think tech really started appealing to me because of that, because we can have these honest conversations, because we can be transparent with each other and we may not always say the right things, but at least there's a space to say them. That's kind of an incredible journey, just understanding and hearing your thought process behind those decisions. So as you narrowed in on an industry and a function within that industry, how did you go about thinking through different companies and behind the scenes, like tell me about that process behind the scenes for what it looked like from your perspective on how to get into Facebook. Yeah, definitely. I mean, for me, I have a relatively unique situation getting into Facebook. It actually directly as a result of networking, but I actually followed my boss. This is my third company working with him. And so he was actually my boss at at like Medallia, which was the first company, tech company that I had I had joined at the time. But when I think about what companies to join, um, obviously the mission is important. And I think we can all agree on that. But I think what's also important is just how the people that you interact with show up to a conversation. So if they're like, not just your interviewers, but also your recruiter. So over the course of the past time that you've been recruiting candidates at Facebook, tell me about, as you've been recruiting candidates at Facebook, if somebody's early in that process, what advice would you give to them in terms of common mistakes to avoid? Honestly, some of the most obvious ones are obviously around under-preparing. So every single conversation, even if it's a conversation with the recruiter, you should prepare for that. And I think some people make the mistake that the recruiter is just kind of there to push people along. Honestly, think of them as like a consultant. Yes, they are, they are definitely there to push things along the process, make sure that you're prepared, but they're also kind of your, your partner. They're the ones navigating your conversation between the business and you and making sure that there's clear and equal alignment there. And I think there's a lot of value in creating a strong partnership with your recruiter and making sure that those conversations, that those conversations have, you know, that you take advantage of those conversations, if you will. And I I also think that what I've seen a lot is when people when people show up to an interview and they and they try to come with all the right answers, and I think I kind of alluded to this before, kind of bringing your whole bringing your authentic self is is critical. But beyond that, I think for someone early on in the process, yes, like reaching out to people over LinkedIn is is important, and trying to create those connections is important. Although I will say, as somebody who does work at a big tech company. I probably get a couple hundred of those messages all the time. And, and that may not always get you to 
the right person. And so trying to also just curate relationships within the business that you're interested in, not just a random recruiter who works for a company that that you're interested in. I've gotten a lot of, you know, I try to make my LinkedIn profile very curated to the audience that or to the business that I support. So my team is hiring data engineers. So I try to make that pretty unequivocal and that way people can kind of use me as a medium to connect with data engineering. But despite that, I still get a lot of like things that are very unrelated to data engineering and to the business that I support. So I wind up trying to, I wind up trying to sort through all of that all those messages as quickly as I possibly can, but I am one person. And so as someone on the candidate side, making sure that you're doing your research into the company and to the, like try to get to know the org, like the org that you are interested in participating in and engaging with those folks directly is, is pretty critical. I would say I, there's a lot of really good advice there. So I want to make sure I summarize for anybody who's listening. So what I heard was, you know, prepare for every single conversation make sure that as you're talking to even recruiters, that you're not taking any conversation that you're having with anybody at the company for granted. And you're really mm-hmm. putting the preparation and effort into all those conversations. Number two, mm-hmm. I heard bringing your authentic self and mm-hmm. not trying to put on like this face or this mask of what you think the company wants to hear, but rather bringing your actual self. And then the third one that I heard was, being really, really clear if you're reaching out cold to a company that mm-hmm. you're doing the legwork to try to figure out the best person, which mm-hmm. a lot of large companies, some people hire for sales and marketing roles, others hire for corporate SGNA, like finance roles, and others hire for technical roles or for you specifically, data engineering. And so with such a large recruiting team, I'd imagine you don't know everybody who does every you know, every wreck at Facebook. And so, you know, doing your legwork on LinkedIn and and really looking at profiles can can help there. So I think one of the really exciting things about these large technology companies, especially in data engineering, is the vast amount of data, which, you know, for somebody who is a data engineer, data scientist, it's like a dream come true to be able to have a data set where you can actually learn so many incredible things about the world. Tell me a little bit more about the types of roles that you're focusing on at Facebook. Yeah, for sure. I mean, within data engineering, there's a whole lot of different subsets and organizations that roll up into that general um, pool of talent. So we try to, we're looking for people who are just generalist, great data engineers who have a core skill set. We don't, we don't necessarily force them to choose a team that they would support yet because we want them to have the choice to do so and to stack rank once they are here. So there's, we do recruiting in a slightly different way than, than probably traditional recruiters. But outside of data engineering, I think what's really interesting is that we are a pretty decentralized technical organization. And what that means is for any product that you're familiar with on Facebook, there is an entire dedicated suite of software engineers, data engineers, researchers, analysts, data scientists, who all work together to promote that promote that product or to make it a better experience for our users. And when you're um, talking about products, because I know a lot of people are yeah. listening and they're like, well, I don't understand Facebook as a product. You're talking about newsfeed as a product, groups mm-hmm. as a product, pages as a product, You know where you can go shopping on Facebook where I start selling almost everything in my house on Facebook now, Marketplace, <laughs> yeah. um, as a product. 
data engineering is a really neat area. If somebody wants to get into data engineering in the future, what are the skills, what are the qualifications, what are the things that they should do to start working towards that in the future? Definitely. So I I would highly recommend actually checking out the book Designing Data Intensive Applications by Martin Kletman. Um, You can find it anywhere online, but it is, I've gotten a lot of feedback about this specific book that has been very helpful in, in basically helping data engineers understand the full life cycle of data in an ecosystem. And I think that's what has been a huge differentiator for companies like Facebook. And again, data engineering comes in a lot of different flavors depending on the industry that you work in. And in tech and in Facebook and a lot of startups, actually, you are owning the entire life cycle versus just being kind of like a, a centralized org where people send in a ticketed request and then you run, you know, you code in a pipeline and then send it back. Some data engineering does work that way, but I would say a lot of, you know, a lot of the roles that we have at Facebook and also a lot of roles in other product focused companies really are looking for that skill set of being able to not only actually create the data pipelines, we, you know, I'm not sure like how familiar people will be with some of these concepts, but I would say ETL, extract, transform, load is a process in which we move data from from one place to, to another to help perform analysis. Okay, so uh, you pick up this book, use this book as a starting point. What are the other things that you should know and focus on in terms of building your tool, your tool belt? Yeah, absolutely. For I mean, for data engineering specifically, I think some primary concepts that you should have a fundamental understanding in is obviously SQL, structured query language, because that is um, the language that almost all databases use and speak in. Being able to understand how to create optimized pipelines through ETL and having su- like pretty strong competence in any object-oriented programming language. So I would say the most common would be like Python, Python, maybe Java, Scala, or C-sharp. And being able to, you know, architect some data models and some elementary experience playing around with BI dashboards like Tableau, Looker. Those are some common products that are out there, but just having fundamental understanding of data visualization. Now, those are all things that I think are important on the technical piece. But the one thing that is very, at least that we index pretty heavily on at Facebook is what we call product sense, which is basically the idea of being able to work on a product team and look at a product and ask the question, how can I make this a better experience for my users? How can I make this a better product? How can I make it more successful? And then it's ultimately using that question and defining the metrics that would actually track that and would actually indicate or inform inform your team whether or not you're tracking on that goal of making the product better. So when we think about a product like Facebook, like the actual application itself or Instagram or WhatsApp, common you know, metrics that people will track is daily active users, monthly active users. That's a situation where you can look at the trend over time and say like, am I, you know, are we servicing our users in the way that, you know, are we seeing peaks and trends and why, why are we seeing some dips in activity versus, you know, high activity at others. Understanding that metric 
and being able to come up with the with the metric itself in the first place is something that really differentiates a lot of the data engineers at Facebook versus you know any other company. It's being able to identify a product, understanding what metrics are important to to leverage in order to understand: Am I making this product better? Am I making it a better experience for my users? Right. Like how do you go about screening candidates? to be able to understand who has the interest, aptitude, ability, desire, passion to be able to do that versus, you know, the traditional software engineer? Yeah, absolutely. It's a great question. And I think, you know, we get a lot of people who come in through the door who are really competent coders and, um, you know, they can code all day. But at the end of the day, as I mentioned, you know, alluded to earlier, our, our structure is decentralized in that we expect data engineers to have a seat at the table when it comes to determining, like, how do we make our product better? So when we look at, you know, the feature changes that have happened on Instagram over time or messenger rooms, which is currently being promoted quite a bit lately, um, why did we create that? Like, why did we create messenger rooms? Well, our data engineers work hand in hand with our product managers and our data scientists to understand like what kinds of engagements are people having on our platform and how can we make them more meaningful? How can we serve them better? You know, are we seeing people click out of Facebook a lot for links to videos and things like that? So how can we incorporate video into our platform? So what's an example of a question that you would ask in an interview to understand if somebody has the aptitude to be able to succeed in this type of environment? I think it's if people can look at a um, or understand where to find important metrics for a company and how to influence those, that's what's important. So a lot of what we actually do in preparing them for the inter their final interviews is we will tell folks to look at, you know, quarterly business reviews that are published online have them look at that, look at what metrics are important to the business to track and understand. And ultimately, I think, um, you know, there are a lot of hypothetical scenarios, but basically asking pretty point blank, you know, if we have a product that is, that has this purpose, what, how would you define success? Like what metrics would you use to define that, that product success? And granted for the confidentiality, obviously of the interview itself, um, I can't disclose like what exactly we ask, but I think having the, having the general concept or understanding of what a product's simple purpose is, and then defining the metrics that will, that will help quantify success even if it's not on the interview, and I know every interview has like a preparation call for the most part with a recruiter, even if it's something that's not a question on the interview, try to come prepared with something that you think might be valuable for the company. So I always, um, when I look back on my interview, I would always actually create a small little PowerPoint based on what I could find about the company that is public and Googleable. So, you know, I would put together a presentation that would say something to the effect of like, well, this seems like, seems like in a recruiting organization at a company, I'll use Bright Edge as an example. At a company like Bright Edge, about 250 employees globally, still budding company, problems that you might be looking at or potentially issues that you'll run into or challenges are around scaling. The talent. And so here are some of my proposals and some softwares and tools that are out there in the world that could potentially help you solve this issue. Now, again, it was an assumption based on what I could find about Bright Edge as a company and what I could see about their company online. 
but just coming to the table with a quick proposal of like, Hey, you know, before this interview, I, I looked up your company. These are some really interesting things or projects or, you know, things in the news that I found about your company. And I thought I'd put together some of my thoughts and reactions to this. Like even something as simple as that, that didn't take an incredibly long amount of time, but having something like that in your back pocket that you can reference is usually is pretty useful in that it, it demonstrates your willingness to look at a problem in a certain way and come to it with a potential solution. And at the end of the day, I think that that's what sets apart some folks over others is coming to the table with some, with a proposed solution. I think what's incredible is over the past 10 years, I think I've been a hiring manager for, I don't know, maybe mm-hmm. 200 roles. Yeah. And I've been on an interview panel for, oh my gosh, I don't even know how many interview panels I've been on. <laughs> yeah. But I think out of five, let's call it 500 people, I think I've seen that maybe 30 times. Yeah. Out of 500 yeah. people. And you take a look at any of these roles, if you're applying for a role, chances are, I mean, statistically on average, there's 250 people that apply for every role. Mm -hmm. I'm sure at a company like Facebook and the competitive companies, that number is going to be much higher. But if you're wondering what the top candidates are doing, it's extra effort that really goes a long way. I mean, we're talking 40, 40 people out of 500 where I saw that. Yeah. Ask them the question you think they should be asking you almost and prepare for it. I think that's, that's, what's been really important in, you know, that's evolved my interview strategy personally, when I look for jobs, like I didn't start doing that until I think until I started interviewing in tech and Mm -hmm. It was only my second job in tech that I that I started implementing that method where just understanding that at the end of the day, you're interviewing for your job because you want to help this company be a better company. <laughs> like if we're going to talk, like strip it down to the layman's terms, hopefully yeah. that's like what you want to do. Because if you really, if you don't, if you really believe in the company, you want it to succeed, you want it to be a better company. You know, when I tie together what you're saying, you know, you mentioned earlier recommending reaching out to the business Mm -hmm. instead of reaching out to the recruiter who might Mm -hmm. get hundreds of messages a day. Like what an incredible way where you could reach out to somebody who potentially might be your future peer. Yeah. They're not getting as many messages on LinkedIn and Mm -hmm. likely you can grab a conversation with them. But like that, that context I can even see putting into this kind of mini project for sure would give you both the public, what you can Google as well as a little bit of a slice of, (laughs) you know, what yeah. working on. I love yeah. it. I love it. Terry, thanks so much for joining yeah. us today. Where can our listeners connect with you online? Um, so I am on LinkedIn. <laughs> uh, that's pretty much like my only public forum. <laughs> um, so definitely, you know, shoot me a message if you have, you know, want to chat a little bit more about finding a career and navigating, having to start over again um, and feeling like you have to pivot your career. I definitely resonate with that and I'm here to support however I can and give any helpful advice that... Thanks again so much for joining us on today's episode. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the show this week. If this podcast was helpful to you, the best thing that you can do to support is please consider rating and reviewing the show on Apple Podcasts. This helps us help more people just like you move towards the life that they desire. Visit our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, then scroll to the bottom. 
tap the rate with five stars and just leave a sentence or two about what you loved most about this episode. You can subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts or you can write at hello at viten.com. I'm Vincent Fanvan, and you've been listening to How I Got Here.